0: Hi, I'm Heather Ellis, your host on Our Stories, Ending HIV Stigma, a podcast by women living with HIV, where we share our stories of our diverse lives and challenge the myths and stereotypes that feed HIV stigma. Our Stories is part of the Women and HIV Tell the Story project, made possible by Gilead Sciences and produced by Positive Women Victoria in Australia. Brittany's story starts in Melbourne. Brittany, not her real name, has been living with HIV for 21 years. At just nine years old, she contracted HIV due to a mishap from major surgery. As a child, a teenager, then a young woman navigating relationships, university and a career, and now a new mum, HIV has never held her back. Welcome, Brittany. And thank you for sharing your story on Our Stories Ending HIV Stigma.
1: No worries, it's my pleasure.
0: I just want to start by asking like, your parents told you you had HIV when you were 10 years old. I imagine you knew very little of HIV other than the occasional news report on TV. What were those early years like for you as a child?
1: Well, it's funny you mentioned the occasional news report because coincidentally, just a couple of weeks or so before I was diagnosed, I actually read an article in the the weekend paper um profiling some people that had recently been diagnosed and it was the headline was something like I will survive um, and so that was that was pretty much my my understanding that so I knew that it was a virus and I knew that it was a big deal to some people but I was also being told um this is not a big deal this is not a death sentence everything should be normal for you when you grow up so it was kind of um reconciling those two differing opinions and those mixed messages that I was getting was probably the major thing that was going on for me at that time. Yeah
0: and so what did your parents do? Did they like um, sit you down and say oh we have something to tell you? I mean, how, how did that go? What, what was your memory of that?
1: I wish I could remember to be honest. It was all a little bit dramatic in terms of the circumstances in which we found out. Um, we got a phone call from the hospital Um, And so from there, it was basically just straight into the car for a test, straight to the hospital to have the test. Um, And so the bits of information that I got from them were very, very sort of small pieces. Um, And eventually, I think we were told not negative at some point, but we weren't told positive for a little while. So there was a little bit of a limbo period in there as well. Um, so I can't really remember the conversations I had with them, but I was kind of learning as they were. We were all sort of, I feel we were all sort of getting that information at the same time.
0: Yeah. And I imagine your parents, like that news would have been so shocking for your parents, for their child to be diagnosed with HIV, but it would also have really, like you were saying, you're on this learning curve and it would have brought you so close together. So over during that childhood did you find that you had this this sort of really stronger relationship with your with your parents and and having their support?
1: Yeah, and I would say that that had sort of continued through life because I've been able to see the amount of time and energy and love that has gone into sort of that part of my experience. I mean, it's gone into all of my experiences with my parents, but that in particular, that sort of I was able to see their need to protect me and to sort of witness that and the things that they were doing and saying. I did have a little bit of an issue at in the earlier days with the fact that we weren't talking about it as much as I thought we should be. I think it's difficult as a child and an adolescent to um, sort of find the right outlet for those kinds of conversations. And the focus was very much on just, I'm a normal child, everything is normal, we'll just go on as normal. When there were moments where I really wanted to be able to sort of sit down and say, look, this isn't fair, this is really crap you know, let, let, let's talk about it. And I almost felt like I deserved a bit more sympathy than I got. But in hindsight, I think they, everything was done exactly the way that I would do it if I had to go through that again.
0: I imagine that your parents were really wanting you to have a normal childhood because of HIV stigma and, and effective treatment, HIV treatments were discovered in 1996. So this was two years before you were diagnosed And so did you go on treatments after you were diagnosed?
1: I did, almost straight away. So I think I was diagnosed in July and started medication the following month. And I'm really, really grateful for that. I didn't have any serious issues with the medications that I was taking. And they were sort of constantly being changed as I got a bit bigger and put on a bit more weight. And and as new medications came out, that had less side effects. I think I was very lucky in that sense that I was able to get down to an undetectable viral load very quickly.
0: Back in those days, no one really knew much about medications or also new; they didn't understand the side effects. They didn't understand like the impact of the treatments on say a female body compared to a male body. But then on a child's body, that would have been something entirely different. Did you find that you were you were one of these people that they wanted to do all these testing on you all the time to find out, you know, the impact of the treatments on a child's growing body?
1: Well, I was actually treated in an adult hospital just because of people that we knew. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure whether it was approached much differently to treating an adult, but um, I know it was certainly, it felt a bit strange to be the only kid in the waiting room of a, of a grown-up hospital. Um, And I'm sure that would have added an extra element of complexity to it. But um, I think I remember like as a child growing up, obviously your weight fluctuates a lot more, increases a lot more than an adult is expected to. So there was a lot of attention given to how much should I weigh and how much did that mean I should take. And so things sort of changed very quickly in that earlier time.
0: And how was it with taking pills back in the early days? I mean, we were taking like four pills twice a day, but today it's like one pill once a day. So that's like eight pills a day that you would have been maximum sort of
1: taking. How did that go? Well, again, it was a learning curve for me. (laughs) Um, And it started out actually with um, a couple of the medications I had had a syrup rather than a pill. So, And that was actually worse, I found, because it used to make me quite nauseous. Um, And we used to have to mix it in with other things to actually physically get it down. And then when I'd, I'd find that in the early mornings going to school, I'd then get really queasy and I had to have spare medication in my bag, in case I grew up. And I do have a memory of trying to swallow a tablet with a bubbler in the, the playground. And I don't know why I was taking it at school or what leveraged that, but just the gravity of it just did not work. <laughs> Yeah, it was a trial and error, I guess. But I've got to a place now where I can confidently take pretty much anything of any size. So, And
0: then you went into teenage years and you would have been pretty much a, an old hand at taking treatments. And for many of us, it just becomes something in the in the background after a while. But how, how did that go when you started high school and girlfriends were talking about boys?
1: I think I was very lucky in that my group of friends and I I didn't have much to do with the opposite sex at all. So dating wasn't really like a a narrative that we were exposed to. It was kind of very much like something that the popular girls did. And (laughs) we didn't have any sort of, I'm sure they had more insight into it than I did, but it just really didn't really come up. So I was very much sheltered from it, from that aspect of it, which I'm extremely grateful for as well. One thing that did kind of that made it a little bit more relevant for me was like if I had friends that were going through some sort of a a crisis, I really wanted to be able to sort of give them some empathetic support and say, you know, listen, I've been through tough times too, you'll be fine. And to be able to sort of back that up with some kind of evidence, but they didn't know, of course, what I'd been through. So I sort of had no authority to tell them, you know, you'll be right. (laughs) And I found that a little bit frustrating So I really wanted them to sort of take me seriously. That's probably the most frustrated I ever, ever felt with it.
0: Did you have any support from the HIV sector? Because I know with myself, I was so grateful to have the support of Positive Women Victoria and we go on an annual retreat and then there's Women Days and, and many of those women over the, the years, they're like my sisters, known each other for so many years. So did you have that kind of support as as a child and then a teenager growing up with HIV?
1: Yeah, I did participate a couple of times in an annual camp that was held, which got kids from all across Australia, and I think there were even some some Kiwi kids as well that were all HIV positive, and that was, I used to find that it was like coming home, because just the, the burden of that secret was not there, and it was so refreshing to meet new people and to not think, I can't tell them this about myself. Even if we weren't just openly discussing it, it was just so nice to have that sort of taken out of the equation. So that was good. And then and when I got a little bit older, I started going in to see social workers as well, who sort of gave me sort of an opportunity to have some counselling and work through, because things come up as issues so quickly when you're growing up as well, like something that wasn't an issue last month might suddenly be really important. So it was just really nice to have have An opportunity to talk that through,
0: and then that sort of sheltered world that you lived in when you were going to high school. And you then <laughs> went, in, went to university and you're studying communications, and then everything changed for you, didn't it? You're saying that you're working in a part time job in retail, and then the magic happened.
1: <laughs> yes, very clumsy dealing with boys and men in general, and probably because of my education the fact that I had basically had nothing to do with them up until this point. So that kind of kept me away (laughs) from any really difficult situations for quite some time. Um, And eventually, as you said, when I was working in that part-time job, I did meet somebody um, very special. And fortunately for him, for me, not for him, but for me, he was uh, just a very accepting person. And I couldn't have known that at the time, but I was just so lucky that when it came to telling somebody about what was going on for me, that it just, like it was a whole in one like it just worked first time.
0: Yeah, because that was before U equals U and that's U equals U is uh, the message of uh, undetectable equals untransmittable. So if people are taking medications and they've got an undetectable viral load, they can't transmit HIV. And that U equals U is backed up by like 20 years of scientific evidence. and. When you met your now partner and husband, that was before we'd even heard about U equals I mean, Mm. it wasn't as widely talked about as it is today, and there was much information out there. So, how did you educating your future partner about about HIV? I mean, most people don't know anything about HIV until they either meet someone or they're diagnosed. That's even today. That's what happens.
1: Well, again, I was very lucky that I didn't actually have to educate him at all. When I sat down to tell him, I think I prefaced it by saying something like, this is not a big deal, but I understand if it's a big deal to you, but it's not a big deal, but, and it just got the message, again, like those mixed messages that I was getting as a kid were just sort of (laughs) coming out again. But his response to me telling him was actually just to sort of quietly go away and do his own research. And he's a man of science, so reading what he needed to know to set his mind at rest.
0: Yeah yeah so because the scientific evidence is all there but it's you don't really come across it until HIV comes into your life. What happens often when people are diagnosed with HIV and I also know with myself is you often feel like you're held back. It's like this cloud hanging over you but that that was it's your story is so inspiring because that was completely not the case with you I mean you went to university you know you found the love of your life all that worked out Mm. and then you started a career and so did you have any any of those kind of feelings that that often is part of living with HIV that shouldn't be part of living with HIV
1: For me, a a big part of that has been the fact that it's just been my secret. So I haven't really exposed myself to any risk of stigma because nobody has known. I mean, that was the decision that was made when I was a child, and I never really sort of reevaluated that at any point in time and thought, "Well, do I want to be more open about who I am and what how I'm living, or do I just want to keep going?" And it's sort of, I guess, it's that, that inertia thing of just keeping going with what you're already doing. It's never really occurred to me to. To be public about it, from a work perspective, it certainly hasn't had anything to do with that.
0: There's stigma that's externalised, that means people say things about you and treat you differently, and then there's internalised stigma, and the two are equally as damaging.
1: The self stigma, on the other hand, is probably more of my Achilles' heel because I think it ties into sort of a natural anxiety that I already have as a person. It's just so easy for that to sort of really amp up that negative self talk and all of that to sort of affect each other and build each other up so when you've got like an anxious mind anyway and then you've got this issue of oh my god i'm hiv positive and if they only knew they would do xyz and it's horrible so just trying to keep that under control has probably been more of an issue for me to be honest
0: 20 years i dealt with that and then when i was completely openly living with hiv that just went away and i know that not everyone wants to openly live with hiv but when when we can end stigma, then it becomes a non-issue, the HIV, whether people know or they don't know. And now you're a new mum. You've sort of went on this journey of pregnancy, being a woman living with HIV, because there's all issues related to that as well, about with your treatments. And then w- when you have the birth, when I had my children, you couldn't have a natural birth. You couldn't breastfeed. You still, it isn't recommended to breastfeed, but you can be supported to to breastfeed and that's happening in, in many countries around the world and they've got new guidelines even in Australia. So how was that journey for you as a new mum?
1: If I'm going to be completely honest, I think there are other aspects of being pregnant and birth that were far more distressing and scary to me than, than the HIV aspect. Yeah, I think it's probably because I was very lucky with my doctors and they were very supportive and I never felt any kind of stigma from them while I was going in for my appointments. So it was kind of just a non-issue. I was seeing an infectious diseases doctor there when I went and saw the obstetrician and she'd basically just go, yep, good, you're all good, no worries. And it was just really reassuring. And it was just the way that it was handled so sort of business-like just made me feel really, really normal, which I, it was actually a really pleasant experience because I'd always felt sort of medically abnormal up until that point the only issue, my baby ended up being a cesarean birth, but not because of the HIV. But again, I didn't feel like that was anything unusual, probably because it had nothing to do with my status anyway, that decision. And then, yeah, the only thing that really did sort of get to me was the breastfeeding thing, because I was obviously encouraged not to. So I was going to do exactly as instructed. I'm not going to argue with the doctor in research, (laughs) but I did find sort of just navigating that and sort of way that mums and other mums and that sort of community can be not necessarily supportive of diversity of choice and so I don't know whether it's like a perceived thing or whether it's actually there but you do sort of feel like you have to kind of stand by your decisions a lot and it's not something I've experienced pre-child really it doesn't seem to apply to other aspects of my life at all but you know, your decisions of whether you co-sleep or don't co-sleep and all that sort of stuff just seem to have so much riding on them in terms of what other people will think and say. So with the breastfeeding, I found that really hard because I obviously wasn't able to do it. So we had him on formula right from the get-go and just the hospital was okay, but just I felt like every time I explained to anybody, about why breastfeeding didn't work out. I had to have this whole sort of story <laughs> attached to it. And I wasn't really confident in the lie either. And I'm not a good liar. So it was just, it was kind of just, I'd skate around the truth a lot and it was just quite uncomfortable. But getting through that was really nice. And then, and that was really the only issue for mm. me.
0: Yeah, that, that, uh, that becomes an issue, I think, for many women living with HIV. And with you equals you now is in a sexual con- context. And as, more scientific evidence is out there. I know that within, you know, 10 years or maybe sooner, you know, breastfeeding will be in the same way U equals U is for sex now. And I really do hope that because the risk at the moment is like 0.3%. But, you know, we really want Zero percent risk we want no no risk, and all that comes from from time and from you know gathering that scientific evidence and now Australia has breastfeeding guidelines, so if women do want to breastfeed, um, they are supported in that decision, and there 's a number of different tests that they continually have to have on their viral load and also tests on the baby and you would experience this with your own baby, even if you don't breastfeed, you still have to have the baby has to have a number of blood tests to check if they have what they call seroconverted. That means that they were somehow infected during the birthing process. It's not through the pl- placenta, but it's through the birthing process. And they take a oral HIV medication for six weeks. And you Brittany would have gone through that with your baby. And so, and then with the testing. So now, I, I recall I think it was, it was about four or five different blood tests my babies had to have up until they were nine months old. Is that the same mm. now with, with having a baby? Because my babies were like 13 and 16 years ago.
1: Yeah, it, it actually does sound very similar to what what we've been through. Um, maybe a little bit less follow-up, but the, the oral medication for six weeks we done um or maybe it was four weeks it, and that kind of just adds to the complexity of bringing home a new baby when you've got to try and measure out like a tiny tiny amount of syrup and <laughs> put it into a tiny tiny mouth via a tiny tiny syringe it's, it's just an uh, and at particular times of day and night as well so that that was a little bit challenging but it, it didn't last very long um and then it was just there were some routine follow-ups that we had to go through but the I guess the nice thing about it was that they always just felt very routine and very normal. Um, That's a big thing for me, I guess, feeling abnormal and that sort of pushing up my self-stigma. So being treated like this is just the most regular checkup in the world kind of made it a nicer experience for me, for sure.
0: Yeah, I, I found the same thing with the healthcare setting. Um, the, the everybody was so fantastic and and um, very professional and very understanding and and they really knew knew their stuff. It's more in the the GP sector. When I first told my my GP, he said, "Oh, well, don't share your toothbrush. Why would I want to share my toothbrush with anyone anyway?" <laughs> so
1: <laughs> resist the temptation. <laughs>
0: All right, so that. I just wanted to also ask, as we finish up the episode today, if you just wanted to tell us why you wanted to share your story and what, uh, what advice have you got for other, particularly young women who are newly diagnosed and just beginning their, their journey of living with HIV?
1: Well, I guess my main motivation for sharing is just that I know that the more of something you hear, the more normal it becomes. And it's simple as that to me um, in terms of more voices, more stories. More normality, less stigma, I know I mean we've seen it with other other um, groups of people that have been sort of previously marginalized and are now sort of becoming more accepted into mainstream society that you know just exposure is what we need it's an ironic use of that word, but <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean so just just I just want to be part of that and if there are any sort of particular aspects of this that other people can relate to then that's that's great too. In terms of words of advice, I think just maybe just don't count anybody out. With my one experience, I know I've only had one experience, but my one experience of disclosing to a partner just went so much better than I could have possibly expected. And like we didn't know each other all that well at the time. It could have gone horribly, but I just gave it a shot and it worked out. And had I not had the guts or I not felt like I could have at that particular time, for any reason, then I just wouldn't have the outcome that I have now. Like I'm, you know, in a in a nice home with this man that I love very much and with our little baby and it's just it's all sort of come from making that one decision in a way to me. So I'd just say, you know, don't count anyone out, just have a crack.
0: <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, that leap of faith, isn't it, that sort of close yourself off from the world. And thank you so much, Brittany, for Sharing your story today on Our Stories Ending HIV Stigma. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thanks.
0: If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you can listen when future episodes are posted. Please rate and review this podcast and share it. Our Stories is part of the Women and HIV Tell the Story project made possible by Gilead Sciences through the Gilead Together grant program and produced by Positive Women Victoria, a community-based support and advocacy organisation for women living with HIV in Australia. I'm Heather Ellis. Thanks so much for listening. Isn't it time we ended HIV stigma once and for all? For more information about this episode, visit positivewomen.org.au.